Well, this is something new for us at Troy TV uh, as we develop an amazing scripted slate with incredibly talented female writers. We thought we'd try a podcast with my very good friend and amazingly talented colleague, uh, Tracy Johnson, who has written an anthology of stories called Flights on Dark Wings um, during lockdown. And it's bloody brilliant. I absolutely love it. So here I am talking to Tracy. Uh, we've just recorded the first four uh, in podcast form. And it's pretty kind of an emotional day, I think. I'm, I'm very excited. Tracy, how are you doing? Emotional, actually, is the word. Yeah, excited. Very strange to be sharing these stories with people for the first time in a, a really broad sense, actually. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Okay, well, for those people who don't know who you are, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, obviously, you are you're a Swiss Army knife, basically. You are an academic. <laughs> you're an academic. You're a presenter. You're an author. You're a musician. Is that fair to say? It's actually my nickname is Victoria Knox. After the Victoria Knox Swiss Army knife. There you go. So, yeah, it's true. I've done a lot of things over the years. Uh, I used to be an academic. Uh, so women's writing was a big thing for me. And that's where a lot of this comes from. But um, I have developed quite a lot of strings to my bow so I do a lot of coaching work so very businessy type stuff I work with you guys so doing lots of presenting which is always huge fun but I also work um, very physically as a personal trainer and a yoga teacher and a combat instructor and I do writing and I'm very very into my music so not just listening but but playing and doing some songwriting so yeah loads and loads of stuff. Well, you obviously, with all of that, you had plenty of time on your hands. <laughs> so, no, but why did you decide to write this anthology and how did it come about? Okay, so it's kind of a product of the pandemic and not in that I used to write creatively a lot when I was a teenager. I had an actual typewriter. So we're going back to the 80s, you know, a proper one in a case and it was on my desk and it'd get told off because I'd be hammering away late into the night. And I was even at that age writing quite dark content I do remember taking it to school and giving it to my English teacher and she said it's very good but are you all right did they call social services yeah, no. <laughs> managed to head that one off at the pass and then I think what happened to me is what happens to a lot of people who go to university to study English you suddenly think I'm never going to be writing anything as good as this stuff that I'm I'm reading and it really knocked my confidence. You know, I thought I'd go and I'd join creative writing groups and things like that. But I, I ended up just stopping writing altogether. In my final year, I did actually study creative writing. Um, I was very, very lucky to study under the Scottish crime writer, William McIlvanny. And he was great. He was really fun. and But he did the things that I think all people who write and, and all creatives need is he gave you boundaries and he gave you tasks so you weren't just you know free forming and, and and doing whatever you want he was like right you have to write this as a short story this is a screenplay this has to be poetry this has to be this you know and it really writing to a brief and trying to find a shape for these kind of free-flowing thoughts I think was great and I kind of sat on that for a really really long time and when you were doing that when you were studying did you see yourself in what you were reading and what you were studying because I'm asking because I heard this amazing interview with Viola Davis the other day oh god I love her she's incredible and she was saying how much she resented having to study kind of like classic screenplays and classic plays because it didn't really represent her and she kind of felt that she had to tear herself away from that 
so how you know I'm just trying to think where is this where is this coming from was it from what you had studied perhaps some of your inspiration or was that a foundation that you were quite happy to study even though it was oftentimes not the female lens mm, it's a really interesting point actually I think I come at this from two viewpoints one is as the creative person who's writing and one who used to be a lecturer and a teacher so while a lot of the stuff I was introduced to I think resonated with me very very powerfully and I think at the age of 17 I was asked to do um, to study Sylvia Plath's Ariel for A-level and I didn't know poetry could be like that and I became like a lot of young women obsessed with her reading her, her, her biography and that did really personally chime with me because at the time I was uh, going through some mental health issues. So I, I, I really kind of, it chimed with me that she was suffering from various issues and she used the writing, I think, as a way of expressing a lot of things that were very personal to women. But I think I really wanted to learn the craft of literature and what literature was. And yeah, there were certain things we, we had to study that I never took to. But even when I was looking at things that weren't from my viewpoint, I was trying to learn about other people's lives and history and how they wrote about it. And I think I don't I've been actually more conscious lately at making myself read things I wouldn't normally gravitate to, to bust myself out of just reading things that chime with my my worldview or being female, being white, um, being Western, all those things. So I've been reading more. Um, writers from different countries, writers of different ethnicities. And you still, because you're human, I hope, still see yourself in those stories. I think everybody finds something. But it's, yeah, there's a certain kind of literature that I'm, I'm kind of like, yeah, I know I'm going to pick that book up and I'm going to love it because that's what I like. But for all of those, I will always try to, I think, yeah, expand my mind a little bit by reading things that I wouldn't normally go to. And then sometimes they don't work. And I, I just don't, I just pass them on. And that's that's okay, you know. It's not not everything you read is for everybody, but I hope for me there's a, there's a meeting somewhere between the things that feel very much like a good fit for me, and when they don't, I still learn something about the craft of, of writing from them. Well, let's talk about your writing. Let's talk about this anthology. Um, give us a quick overview. Uh, what what are the stories and and what's the tone? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting tone. Oh, I think as I said, they didn't. They're not kind of. Um, they're not a lockdown book, basically. I, I had already, as I said, I, I used to write like that. And then I became a nonfiction writer. And I was really already getting that feeling that I could feel it almost in my chest. It's like an urge to get something out. And, and I'd started carrying a notebook around and I'd been capturing things that kind of struck me. And um, I'm based in Bristol. And I remember being at the Arnold Feeney. I nipped into the Arnold Feeney toilets, as a lot of people do. And I shut the door. And I was sitting on the loo and somebody had written this amazing graffiti about being watched by birds. And I thought I could do something with that. So I wrote it down. That was the first thing I wrote in my notebook and it became drag. And when I was traveling to and from London for work and staying in hotel rooms, that notebook kept coming and going and coming and going. And I was adding things and adding things. I was reading a lot of writing by the musician and writer Patti Smith who was just extraordinary and reading her was kind of freeing up my mind and I was taking in everything she was writing about like with Genet and Baudelaire and her artistic processes and it just kept reinforcing this feeling that I have to get this out, I have to start writing again and I got a few bits down and then we went into lockdown and I remember the first night of lockdown feeling horribly depressed 
and I reached for the book. And I thought, that is what I need to do. I've got to write these stories. They've been there for a while now. But this is, you've got time and you never have time. And this could be, I don't want it to be that awful thing where, you know, you have all these memes going around with, what did you do doing lockdown? Well, I learned another language and I did, uh, you know, just another shut up. Another fucking sourdough bread. Yeah, Give me a just break. bugger off. But it, for me, it was an, op- an opening to start doing something that I thought I couldn't do anymore. And drag came together... Once it started, it just flows, and I'm still probably happier with that than all the other stories. It just, for me, feels like a good example of what I do. I guess the tone with all of them is... is It is dark. I love gothic. Uh, I like extremes. I like to explore human behaviour by pushing it to an edge that people don't normally go to because I like to see what happens when people are put under pressure. And that comes from my experience of growing up, which wasn't everybody's experience of growing up. It wasn't at all an ideal way of growing up. It did include very stressful, life-threatening at times situations. And I think I reacted to it when it was over by kind of hiding and withdrawing. And I wouldn't expose myself to anything like horror or violence because I was so frightened of it. And as I got older, I realised I think what happened is to get a handle on it and to process it, I started exploring it. I started watching lots of horror. I started watching violent films. As an academic, I was researching violence and gothic. And it was for me, it was like a, a window opened because it's a great way to explore human nature in these extreme situations. And that's probably what most of these stories do. But it's so true, isn't it? Because we shrink away, we physically and mentally shrink away when something attacks us, when something is scary and something makes us feel less than ourselves. And we try to make ourselves smaller, Yeah, I think. And then, you know, when you start writing about or you start performing or whether it's dance or music or literature, I suppose you're kind of owning it in a yeah. way. And you're 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 getting yourself back on top of it and owning that situation. I mean, I know that's incredibly simplistic. <laughs> Sorry, Oprah. Um, you know, there are many layers to it. Brene Brown will not be hiring me. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, it's true. I mean, you must, yeah. you must feel a little bit of a sense of, we were talking about that in the room just a while ago, like all of us, all of us women in the room and producer Alice as well, who's out there. Hello, Alice. Um, we felt a bit of healing. Right. A bit of ownership right. from the past traumas. Yeah. That's, I think it's that's completely consistent with what horror does for people as a genre. And I've been such a fan of horror, all types. I mean, you know, there's, there's um, a genre now, that a, part, a sub-genre with a horror that's now talked about as elevated horror, it's like intellectual horror, which d- a lot of people don't like that, but um, I love it. It's, it's, it's films like Relic, The Babadook, Um, The stuff that is not out-and-out violence, but the real slow burn, the psychological horror you really have to engage with. But, you know, the last conference paper I gave as an academic was on the first two Hostel films. Because for me, and and for most people, I think, researching horror, they're considered genre, but they're telling you something really important about what's going on in politics and the human condition. And what they function as is a release you strap yourself in at the beginning of a movie, you climb up and up and up that roller coaster, and then it takes you on a ride. Fingers crossed it's going to be really safe. And at the end of it, you get off and you've had that catharsis, you've had that release, and the world's been put back in its normal place again, and you move on. And that's why we love it. We like being 
scared and disturbed, but in under someone else's control, in a controlled way. You know, you're never going to quite be in danger, but you get that frisson of feeling for a while that you are. But traditionally, at least in in cinema uh, and a lot of literature, but in cinema especially, I mean, that has always been through the male lens mm. and and the male point of view. Uh, but yours is very much from the female point of view. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Because I think that's really important. Yeah, um, I think it wasn't until I'd written a good three or four of the stories that I thought, actually, I want to make them all about some process of a woman going through a transformative experience. And I really stuck with, you know, that, that, that classic chestnut, write what you know. I would not feel comfortable writing from a male perspective because I don't honestly know what it feels like to be a man in this world. And I wouldn't like to feel that I could tell someone that I did. And I think some writers do that really well. But I've never had male children. I have no children. Um, I don't know what it's like to bring up male children and all the stuff that comes with that. I could only write from, not my own perspective, that's not the same thing, because I think I can see things from different points of view. But I wanted to write about women's experience under pressure. And what, again, explore what might happen and some of those women and those voices are so rude and so impolite and so far outside what's considered normal and I guess when I'm writing them I don't really see it like that and this week only and I should should have known better than to feed the trolls I usually stay off social media but oh god what did you do nothing too bad um I'm part of a music group she'll remain nameless Somebody posted about a new documentary that's coming up that I'm fascinated by um, called Sisters with Transistors, which is about the the history of women in electronic music. And I do think, and I think most women in in, in music, I'm not in the music industry, I'm very amateur, but I'm I'm connected very well to lots of people in, in the music industry. There's so much discussion now. I mean, the festivals that are now being put on, we're all so grateful to be able to go to live music. When you look at the festivals, you'll have a bill of 70 70 male-fronted bands and four women. So something's not right there. And that's not just the choice of the bill. That's lack of women having access to music education, studio space, or being taken seriously as musicians. It was a man who posted it saying he was really looking forward to it. Someone else in the group who was a guy said, I take issue with, quote, this feministic depiction of the music industry. Women need to stop making themselves out as something special. Can we not just do it gender blind? (laughs) Okay, gear yourself up for this one. And I'm like, no, I'm going to be super polite because I know how to have an academic argument. It's what I do. I'm used to arguing with people in a constructive way. And I wrote back and said, I'm really sorry you feel like that. You know, super polite. But if we look at things gender blind, I didn't go with also race blind because that was starting a whole other argument I didn't want to get into. But it's the same thing. But it applies. Yeah. If you say you don't see gender and you don't see race, that doesn't change the fact that there are huge inequalities in gender and race in the society. And all I said was, you know, that masks inequalities of access generally. And then there was this awful to and fro. And he basically accused me of not being a grown-up who could accept that other people had different points of view. So I just laughed. I thought, I'm just going to leave it there because I don't think... You might as well argue against Trump. I mean, what are you going to do? I'm not the one who's triggered here. Um, And that was obviously what happened here. I think this person just really has an issue with it. And I should have known better. But at the same time, I was kind of like, I can't let that go. I can't let that go. 
And so, I mean, what are you going to do if you get that kind of feedback now? It's like, oh, you know, feminist stories, blah, 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 women, women, whatever. Let it go. Fuck them. Yeah, basically. Um, it's I wrote what I know. You do you. I'll do me. I'm not forcing you to read the effing book. Um, if you don't like it, don't expose yourself to it. But the one thing I would say is, you know, don't write shitty comments about things people have written or films that they've made that you haven't actually taken the time to watch. That's probably the really um, the really annoying thing about all of this is assumptions about what people are, are doing rather than engaging with it and trying to see some merit in it, even if you don't agree with it. Well, leaving all the negativity aside. Yes. Um, so there's some themes throughout these four stories that we have just uh, recorded. Mm. Um, safety, needing to feel safe, um, being alone, out of necessity, but also out of desire. Mm. Um, you said transformation earlier. It's, it, that's so true. I, I had written rebirth, reimagining, literally getting a new skin. Yeah. Sometimes. Um, and and quiet. Yeah, there's a. I, I found it was a. It was quite quiet. There was no noise, and the noise seemed to be quite disturbing. Yeah, when it came in. Yeah, um, that's, that, that's all very correct. <laughs> <laughs> that's. I guess all of that comes from a. Inevitably, it's a combination of things, isn't it? It's never completely straightforward, and. I think a lot of it is the little nubs of, of life experience expanded into something obviously hugely um, extreme. But I'm an only child. I spent most of my childhood on my own being creative by myself. And I find sometimes other people's presence around me quite disturbing. I find other people's noise, other people's movement. It feels a little bit like it's encroaching on me because I didn't grow up in a very safe environment. That's all I'll say. And being on my own is a place of safety, being able to close the door listen to music, write, read, all those things are things that I associate with escape. And I, yeah, I, I am a social person, but I always re recharge by being alone. And that's really important um, to me. I think the other thing I probably experienced when I was in very serious and, and committed relationships is something I think other people have experienced too and it comes as a real shock to the system is you can be very lonely even when you're in a relationship when that relationship is not right and you can feel more alone because you're meant to be supported and I think being with someone and realising it's a terrible mistake you feel worse on with that person than you would if you were by yourself. That just reminds me of one of the lines of... Um uh, one of your one of your stories. Um, I think it says, "I am I am not subsumed. I am doubled." And I thought that really sums it up. It's like a lot of the relationships in the books, um, whether in your in your stories, sorry, it feels like something is being taken away from them uh, when they are not with perhaps the right person, or they are not in the right frame of mind to be with that person. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I'm. I'm so not anti-relationship, but I'm anti-people staying in relationships that are bad for them when they could choose to go. And that's not um, talking about the extreme. That's not talking about abusive relationships. It's a whole other psychological ball game that means women find it very difficult, very dangerous to leave those situations. But we, when you're with someone and you're always thinking, this is stopping me from doing things. This has closed doors on my life. This person isn't showing me love and kindness and respect. Why are you still there? 
if it's not dangerous for you to leave, go off and explore your own ideas, your own potential, the things you want to do. And I guess other recurring things you've mentioned to me when we, we've talked before, the rituals of eating alone and how we eat differently when, when partners or family aren't around. And I, I remember, you know, being in relationships and being in happy relationships, but the partner going away and thinking, oh, what am I going to have for dinner that I can have that they're not going to complain about because they, they don't like this or don't like that. And I can eat it at a different time. I could eat it standing up. I could eat it sitting in the bath. Um, all those things. It's just a little bits of... Um, self-indulgent freedoms that you have sometimes when you're when you're by yourself I do the same thing sometimes when my husband's away I will just like eat super noodles from the pot standing on one leg <laughs> in the kitchen yeah. just randomly looking at a magazine or something it's just and you would never do that no when it's the two of you no no so it's yeah it's these little glimpses of into into not just women but what probably people do when there's no eyes on them and and when you are feeling you know that you can completely be on your own and how often do we get to do that these days and you know not feel pressured I think there's just so much in our society where we feel we have to look a certain way or do a certain thing and having that pressure taken off so you can indulge your own wants is actually such a, a big gift you can give yourself so what, what I think I'll do is ask you just a little bit about every particular story so we'll kind of try and use those little bits as little promos and we won't put this little interchange in the no, actual cut of this so tell me about Paris. This is quite the... Ah, it's, it's a cheeky little number. It's a very cheeky little number. This story is actually based on a true story. And this is very spooky. And this is one of the things that... The little funny little stories that go along with these this anthology. And um, I thought I'd like to write a story about being in Paris. I, I'd written down a list of topics that just sparked ideas like cafe, Paris, coffee, cinema, all my my things. Anybody who knows me is like, you could write Alyssa. She wears black. She has red lipstick. She wears this perfume. She watches this kind of film. So I'm like, right, let's write a book out of all of those things. I have wanted to live in Paris for a really long time. Thanks a lot, COVID. Um, that's not happening for a little while. So I spend time there when I can. And over the years, it's changed a lot. I mean, it's I've seen tourist Paris, but I have enough friends there and I've wandered around enough to see the homelessness and be harassed on the metro and how bad it stinks of piss, basically. It really does, especially down on the metro. But this story that I found was of um, a locked apartment mystery. And it was a woman, a high, high-end professional woman, would wake up in the morning to a locked apartment from the inside with the place absolutely trashed. Mirrors broken, stuff written all over the walls. And it took a while for it all to work itself out. She was an extremely high-functioning alcoholic with really severe mental health issues that she was living this whole double life. And I thought... Oh, spoiler alert, by the way, people. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just talking as if people have heard the stories. Maybe just in we case you put that in, actually. Beforehand. Yeah, spoiler alert. And um, I thought, actually, this is this could bring together my, my love of Paris, but also my appreciation of it is sometimes really not feeling very welcoming to people who don't get the code, if you know what I mean. We um, oui, we. Oui. I feel very fortunate. I speak reasonable French and I've never been made uncomfortable by Parisians. I've always, you know, they've responded really well to my chatting. Most people say I look more French than the French. I, I definitely don't look particularly English. I fit very well when I go to other European countries, but it can make you feel like crap when you get things wrong. Very, very judgmental sometimes. And I know people have felt that. I have an academic background. And I had read quite some time ago um, the memoirs of uh, somebody who works in the art 
sector, Catherine Millet, who wrote um, a book all about her sex, very, very, very dramatic sexual life. So that reference is directly from the sexual life of Catherine M. Catherine M. As she used to go and have group sex in parks in in Paris, and she wrote about it all really, really frankly. Um, so there's a there's a follow up reading uh, list there for you: the sexual life of Catherine M. And I thought actually I could get all of this in um, and and turn this into some really strange kind of psychological thriller in a way. Uh, but it was it was exciting to see it unfold. I don't plot before I write. I just write and see what with a short story, a short form. I get started and then I start thinking might what might happen. I don't plot it ahead. But anybody who's read the, the original text will know I edit ruthlessly. I was just going to ask, please don't tell me you write that perfectly first time around because that's almost depressing. No, it's like onto the page. Just get it out. And every time I, I go back, I, I edit what I've written before I start again with the new stuff. And then edit again and edit again. So every time I go back to that manuscript, it gets nipped and tucked all the way through. So... When I used to teach essay writing to my students, it was always like, go through every sentence. Is there a word in there that's redundant? If so, cut it. Just have what you need. And that's been my creative style. I, I used to overwrite like a lot of people, especially stuff from my academic career 20 years ago. You read it and go, what the heck was that? And now it's ruthless editing uh, to keep it really, really clean and crisp and to constantly review where it's come from so I get a better idea of where it's going. Amazing. And so tell us about Drag. Drag was the first one um, that you wrote. So it's probably got a really special, I mean, obviously, it's a very personal story as well. It's, you know, it's personal inspiration. Yeah. Um, so it must be, uh, must be really satisfying to have recorded it today and yeah. to have it, you know, out there. First one I wrote, I still think the best story in, in the book. Um, I'm really happy about how that was crafted. And it's been run by a couple of other writers and, and somebody who's opinion on it I really respect said you know there's just not a spare word in there there's no wasted words and I, I was really really happy with that as a as, as a compliment um I I just again started it but didn't know what it was going to be about what I did know is I didn't want it to be obvious I set it up with I guess little clues in there to make you think she's killed someone and I didn't want it to be that obvious I wanted it to be about guilt and leaving behind the relationship that doesn't serve you. Having done that myself and felt the disapproval of both families of those parties and still having to steal yourself and walk away from it saying, no, I'm doing the right thing. Even though everybody is blaming you and saying, you should have tried harder. You can't leave. It's like, well, watch me because I'm unhappy. And dragging that with you for quite some time. And I guess that's what happened is I suddenly thought, what could she be dragging? Maybe she's actually, maybe she's actually dragging this massive pair of wings and it wasn't until I wrote the scene in the bath that I suddenly thought ah oh, this is it this is this is going to be a story of a physical as well as an emotional transformation and I was so excited when that first scene came where she got stuck to the bath because it's happened to me so many times you know you get wedged in you get a little vacuum going and you have to peel yourself away and I thought oh god but what if the skin stays there Ooh, that's horrible but I could do something with that and that's when I knew that story was coming together Oh my God, I will never have a bath in the same way again. <laughs> Stay out of the water. It's like the Jaws moment. It's a crow moment. Because crows are everywhere in Bristol. If anybody's visited Bristol, I think they've kind of become my spirit animal since I wrote this collection. I just think they're beautiful and they're so intelligent, but they're so intimidating. And I just thought, no, I'd love to do something with this, this crow image. So yeah, that all kind of came together there. Now, storytelling 
is very scary. Like it's it's terrifying. Uh, Shades of Stieg Larsson. Yes, yes, definite influence. The girl with the dragon tattoo. Um, don't want to ruin it for anyone who's not seen the film, but there is a very nasty tattooing scene in there, which is a very very appropriate piece of revenge for something horrible that happened. So I had that in mind. I had an idea for a story. I wanted to end the anthology, so it's the last story in the collection. And I wanted to write a story that brought all the other stories together and became about writing women's stories. So it's a bit meta, I suppose, make it sound a bit wanky. Um, Sorry, edit. Uh, That's the next story. Bit pretentious. (laughs) Yeah, that's the next one. Um, And what happened what brought it together was I saw an opportunity to enter it for a competition and the theme of the competition was threads and I suddenly thought of course Ariadne gave Theseus the ball of thread to go into the the, the Minotaur's lair and slay the monster and find his way back out again but there has of course been this big trend lately for you know writers like Pat Barker and um, a couple of other people's names just escaped me, but they're so good. I'm so sorry. Uh, rewriting Greek myths and really bringing the, the the kind of silenced women's, you know, they weren't just sitting at home knitting while other people were having adventures. There was a, a huge amount going on. Uh, and I wrote about the alternate myth of Helen of Troy for my, my, my doctorate um, from a massive epic story by uh, an American poet called H.D. Hilda Doolittle. And I was, I've always been interested in these alternate takes on these stories. And I thought, no, I want this woman to be I want her to take Theseus's role and I want her to go into them into the into the, the the labyrinth and slay her her monster but I wanted the threads to be something else and of course they turn out to be blood so it's all very disturbing but for me it was a very personal story we've all got monsters I think we need to to slay and that was for me a very metaphorical way of slaying a monster I felt who had never let me be myself and that was quite quite important so I remember when I finished writing it, I was a bit stunned by what had come out. It felt it was really strong, but it is very, very written from the heart, that one. So, I mean, if you don't like that story, that's okay. But it's it's a very honest story. So I stand, you know, stand by all of these as being my products of my brain and things that I, I, I felt were important to say. But that one, yeah, that was a really personal one. Now, Attachment... Is quite the story. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell us about that? I, I'm, I'm finding it hard to describe it without giving too much too away. Too much away. Um, attachment is about somebody who just can't engage in relationships. They would much rather be on their own than watch. I suppose what it is, it's, it's a reaction to the very, what I can best describe as heteronormative romantic template that's pushed at people all the time, especially by sort of, you know, Hollywood movies. And Nicholas all that Sparks. <laughs> you know, boy meets girl, happily ever after. It's all romance and champagne and roses and all this stuff. And if that works for you, you go for it. Um, I'm, not, I'm not denigrating that, but it doesn't work for me. And it never has done. And I think it probably doesn't work for quite a lot of people either. I don't think it serves women very well, full no. stop. It's very passive. It puts women in a very passive role. It... It makes men... Grateful for attention. Yeah, grateful for attention that men need to be pleasing women as well, which is also not appropriate, I don't think. Um, relationships are hard work, properly done. You know, they're always a balancing act and they're about giving and taking and respect and all those kinds of things. And, and they're, they're messy and they're grown up and yeah. it's chaotic and it's not linear. It's not linear and it has to be... You have to be able to argue well and disagree and all of these things that are not 
shown, I think, a lot of the time. And of course, there's, there's, there's other relationships beyond men and women. And, you know, why isn't that shown honestly? So much more. I recently read an absolutely fantastic book called In the Dream House um, by Carmel Machado, I think her name, Carmen Machado, uh, which was actually, I picked it up in the bookshop and two booksellers ran at me going, it's amazing. And it was extraordinary because it's about being in an abusive same-sex relationship, which apparently is something that is not discussed in gay literature at all. And some of the other stories, which we haven't put in the podcast, do explore those alternate sexual relationships as well. So there's a story called Waves about a woman who is seduced by another woman who is absolutely not what you think she is. And I wanted to sort of, with the stories, explore just there are different ways of being in love. There are different ways of experiencing relationships. There are different ways of experiencing sex. Attachment, though, although she, the, the narrator in there, most of them are fallible narrators, I guess. Um, they're, they're all a bit questionable in all my stories, or they have such strange things going on that you question their sanity. That's very influenced by my love of French horror film. So two films I can definitely name check. Um, In My Skin by Marina Devan, which is about a woman who has an accident and hurts her leg and then becomes obsessed with eating the flesh from that, that wound. It's a very difficult film to watch, but it's extraordinary. And how that affects her relationship, this obsession with her own injury, it's, ex it's extraordinary. I think it's an amazing film she wrote and directed and starred in it. So, yeah, pick that one up. Uh, and Raw by Julia DeCorno. Um, very hard to watch, really busts some taboos uh, when you watch a, a young girl eating her own sister's severed finger, pushes a few buttons, but it's about sexual awakening and a woman coming to women coming into their own, not by having sex with men, but by eating people. Uh, it's, it's again, it's, it's just extraordinary. And I knew... I didn't see Raw until after I'd written the story, but in, in my skin had been something I'd been, I'd been researching and trying to write about for a really long time before I stopped doing academic work. And that really influenced that, that story. Plus also, of course, I'm absolutely a cinema obsessive. I go to the cinema in the afternoons and sit in the front row, and that's my, that's my thing. Well, I'm hopefully a little bit more functional than my narrator in attachment. <laughs> but I think it's so true. We should be talking about relationships in all of their forms, uh, to ourselves, to each other, you know, to the, to the world around us, not in such traditional terms. I no. find it incredibly dull. And I think it's quite sad in 2021 that we still have to have, you know, such traditional conversations all the time. I, I would have thought by now, you know, and, and labeling, everything's got a label. label. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a good story is just a good story. Love is just love. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. It just is what it is. And I think there's, oh, we're so quick to judge and say that's not okay, but okay to whom, you know? And one of the subjects I didn't cover, and it's not, it is something I want to talk about, and I've, I've already started working on a much longer form piece of writing that will address this at some point, is the fact I never wanted to be a mother. And yet people will make comments about that. And I, I was very offended, and I think quite rightly so, by a, a woman who said to me, but you'll never be truly happy unless you know what it is to be a mother oh my god said, she did not say she that. did say that and uh it's like i'm not a real woman unless i've been a mother and people have been parented really badly that's out but that's outrageously insulting it's awful it's so isn't it it's very patronizing you can be a terrible parent you could be a great parent it's another it's another set of experiences i could have included in that in that collection a story about not being a mother i don't know how to write about motherhood 
I'm not one. I don't want to be one, but I can write about not being a mother. And I think that's probably something that will come up because, again, it's another relationship that's pushed on, on people in society quite strongly. Well, well I don't know. I mean, as a mum of two boys, I couldn't write it because, mm. I mean, it would just be my experience. Yeah. I wouldn't dare to speak for someone else. I think when people make those kind of generalizations, it's quite, Yeah. it's, yeah, it, it, it's not very educated. It's not, no. And I think it is something that is important to address because you could argue the book is, is feminist in its overview because it's it's pro looking at women's experience but you have to be very careful my i have a phd in, in feminist theory that's what I, I studied many years ago like any social group we do not represent everyone within it i cannot speak for other women's experience and it's insulting to speak of women's experience who have had less opportunities than i have who have less money than i have who don't have access to things i am not speaking for their experience like i can't I can't speak for mothers, I can't speak for men. I can just speak for me. And that's what's in that book is the sum total of my things based on my life experience very loosely. You know, it's not autofiction, as I reference in Paris. It's very far away from my own experience. But it's the influences on me, the books, the films, the people, the travels that I've had. I mean, what else do you write about? But you have to turn it into something else. That's the create. That's why it's not creative, is it? Is that's a, that's an autobiography. If it's fiction, it's got to be far away from its its root source. I think. And just finally, there's one one element that I really wanted to talk about, and that was self love, and obviously an attachment that goes in the story of attachment that goes to an absolute extreme. Oh, for sure. And uh, she becomes obsessed with herself. But self love. I mean, there's got it's kind of a double-edged sword to talk about. It's like you could have all the wanky Gwyneth Paltrow stuff, but in the real sense of the word, it's, I think, what you have done writing these stories is an extraordinary act of self-love. I think it's, you've paid tribute to yourself, to your talents, to your amazing imagination, and I think it's quite an inspiration for for me anyway. Um and I, and I hope it will be for many people, men, women. I, I, I think it's, you know, what do you think about that? Gosh, I never would have said that about it. I wouldn't have thought of it in that way. But I have thought about, I suppose, who I am and what I'm happy with now. And I'll be 50 this year. I'm feeling good about that. You can, I can see things changing. You know, the body's changing. But I'm at a point where... I feel probably most at home with myself as I ever had and very disinclined to apologise for anything that I do that is in my interest that isn't hurting other people. That's what I think. I try to live a good life. I do the best I can by other people. I'm a yoga teacher. I have my own values that I, I live by that I think are important. But I have interests. I have a job that I like doing in, a, in a, several jobs I like doing in a, in a certain way. I like to live in a certain way. And I'm not going to apologise for that. And I suppose self-love is a good way of putting it. I suppose at my age now and the choices I've made, I have very high self-esteem. I don't mean that I don't doubt myself. That would sound really arrogant. I have crises every so often like everybody else and think, oh, God, what have I done? Maybe I should have a mortgage. Maybe I should have stayed married. And I just go, no, no, because I have all these choices with the current life I have. And I'm living a life that is as close to who I want to be as I can at the moment. And if you want to call that 
self-love I think that's probably that's probably a nice a really nice way of thinking about it but yeah I think I'm just at a good I'm in a good place and I'm kind of I am happy about that and I'm not apologetic for it and I think that is as a woman a very good place to be. Well, I am honoured and privileged to be your friend and to be your colleague. <laughs> and I think we should go out and have a big glass of wine now. What do you think? I think that's a re- I need it to calm down after reading those stories. <laughs> I wine, think it's a great chocolate, idea. crisps. Noodles. Noodles. The works. Okay. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you so much. Well, and thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely amazing. We're out. Oh, my God.